You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear Saints, our Gospel lesson from Matthew 22 takes us right into the heart of Passion Week. It's Holy Tuesday. Jesus has been coming to the temple to teach and to preach every day for the past three days. And the tension there in the temple has continued to grow. The Pharisees, all the religious rulers, are more and more ready to be rid of Jesus, to do whatever it takes. In fact, to kill Him if need be. But they're afraid of the crowds who have gathered to hear Jesus and and like to hear His preaching. So they're looking for a way to trap Him, to catch Him. They want Jesus to do something or to say something that will help them in their plot to catch Him and kill Him and to silence the preaching of Jesus about God's grace and God's kingdom. Now, we started the gospel lesson in the middle of a conversation. uh, uh, Before this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had brought two questions to Jesus already to try to trap Him, and our text picks up with the third question. But to get the context, first, you'll remember that they asked about paying taxes. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And we can see the trick there. I mean, there was really one, two ways to answer the question, and either way, Jesus was going to be in trouble. If Jesus uh, says, sure, pay the taxes, then the, then the people will revolt against Him. Uh, the Messiah, they thought, was going to set them free from this Roman occupation. Or, if Jesus says, no, don't pay the taxes, then they could hand Jesus over to the, authority, uh, uh, the authorities as a rebel. But Jesus beautifully answers this question. He asks for a coin and says, whose image is it? And then when they say that the image is Caesar's, Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So they try again to trap him. The next question comes from the Sadducees. Now, we'll remember that one of the big theological differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. So the Sadducees brought their best question, the the question that they had always used to confound the Pharisees. They tell the story. There was a man who was married to a woman, and they didn't have any children. The man died, so the woman married Uh, the woman married his brother. They also had no children, and he died. And this happened seven times. She was married to seven brothers, had no children. All the brothers died. And then the lady died. And so the, the Sadducees asked, therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? You see the question again. These guys who don't even believe in the resurrection want Jesus to stumble and fall. But he doesn't. He can't. He answers, in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And then he confounds them with the words of Moses who quotes the Lord in Exodus chapter 3 calling himself the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus says, God is the God of the living, not of the dead, thus proving the doctrine of the resurrection. Now all of this was leading up to our text. And it's important to get the context because it might seem like the question that comes in the beginning of our gospel lesson about what the greatest commandment is might be an honest theological inquiry. In fact, people had come to Jesus asking that kind of question earlier in his ministry. But we want to see that this question from this lawyer is not, in fact, an honest one, but, in, but the, the worst trick of them all. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were all along trying to trick Jesus 
by setting one part of God's law against another part of God's law. And that was their basic game, and they played it well. They were experts in it. But when they're not catching Jesus, when they're not able to do this, they want to figure out what rules Jesus is playing by. What do you think the greatest commandment is, they ask. And they ask this to order, in order to find out how they can trap Jesus. So that if they know the greatest commandment to Jesus, they can find the lesser commandments that Jesus is willing to break in order to keep the greater. Do you see the setup? If they can know, according to Jesus, what his greatest commandment is, then they can find the commandments that they need to set against that one and thus trick Jesus, make him into a lawbreaker. But again, Jesus simply won't play along. He won't get stuck in the trap. He perfectly understands the law. He himself wrote the law and knows that there is no contradiction in the law. So he answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus refuses to let there be a contradiction in the law. And especially at this most basic point, Jesus refuses to let our love for God be set against our love for the neighbor. And this is really the first thing that we want to learn from the text. In fact, Jesus will say that our love for God is demonstrated by our love for the neighbor. St. John writes, this is 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So that we, in fact, not only is there not a contradiction between our love for God and our love for for our neighbor, we, in fact, demonstrate our love for God when we love and serve the people that God puts in front of us. Now, the Pharisees would do the opposite. They would scorn their neighbor. They would neglect even their family because of their love for God. At least that's what they claimed. And they were living in this theological trap that they were trying to set for Jesus. It makes them the very definition of a hypocrite. They insisted, the Pharisees insisted, that keeping one law would mean breaking another. But Jesus, on the other hand, sees that keeping one law is, in fact, keeping them all. When we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, then we also love and serve our neighbor. The two go together. There is no contradiction or hypocrisy in love. And this love is the summary of the entire law. And by preaching love, Jesus ends the entire game of the Pharisees. And and he springs all of the traps that they were trying to set for him. And and, and this, he moves the conversation into, in fact, a serious consideration of God's law to meditate on God's command to love. Now, we remember that this word love sounds nice to us. It sounds very uh, peaceful and soft. I've, for some reason, been listening to a bunch of songs from the 70s in the last two weeks, and all of them are about love, <laughs> And they all sound really nice. In fact, I think in some ways the word love stands against the idea in our minds of the 
of the idea of the law. We have on the one hand the strict commands of the law, and then on the other hand we have love. But this contradiction doesn't exist theologically or in the Bible at all. In fact, love stands as the perfect summary of the law. It is all of the commands of God boiled down to one word. And just like the law always accuses us and shows us our sin, so does this word, love. It always accuses us. It always shows us our sin. Love demands of us everything that we've got. So that there is never a time in our lives when we can look at this command to love God and love our neighbor and say that we've done it. That we've, that we've loved God like we should have, with all of our heart and mind and strength. That we've loved our neighbor like we love ourselves. So that love, even though it sounds nice to us, love is in fact our worst accuser. And the standard that God puts forth in this command to love is so impossibly high that even we who have the Holy Spirit helping us to know and to keep the law of God can only say that we have begun to love, never that we've finished. So that this command, God's command to love, shows us our sin. It shows us our desperate need for God to come and rescue us. And the more, I think, the more we meditate on this command to love, the more we stand, even in our own mind, accused. The more we feel the wrath and the anger of God. The more that we know that we have fallen short of the glory of God, who is love, and that we've deserved His wrath. So with this answer to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees and to us, Jesus cuts them and us down. With this preaching of love, He demolishes our pride and He shows us our sin. So at last the Pharisees and the Sadducees are silenced. There's no more questions. There's no more traps for Jesus. There's nothing left to say. And the same is true for us. When God's law has its way with us, it is, as St. Paul says, that every mouth is stopped. Because there is no way that we can stand before God and boast in our own efforts or our own works or our love. It's not enough. We do not love enough. We never have and we never will. And while we begin to love, our, our failures and our incomplete love is a constant testimony to heaven itself that we deserve God's anger and hell itself. So, with the Pharisees and Sadducees, we also are silent. But then Jesus takes a turn and He preaches. Three of the, of the of the trickiest, uh, of the best traps that the Pharisees and Sadducees could think of. The question about taxes, the, the, the question about the resurrection, and the question about love have failed to trap Jesus. So now he turns around and says to them, I've got a question for you. And he gives them a riddle. He asks, whose son is the Messiah? And they give the correct answer, David's son. So then Jesus says, 
How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him his Lord, how is he his son? Now let's make sure we understand the riddle because it's really quite genius. It's, it's fantastic to think about. The Lord uh, God had promised King David that his seed would sit on the throne into all eternity. And this is why we know that the Messiah will not only be the son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, but also the son of David. That was, in fact, one of the titles of the Messiah, the son of David. So when Jesus asked the Pharisees, whose, whose son will the Messiah be? They answer rightly and say, the son of David. King David, though, is the author of Psalm 110, which is the psalm that Jesus quotes. And in that psalm, David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit here at my right hand. That first Lord is God the Father. The second Lord is God the Son, the Messiah. And David here calls the Messiah my Lord, which is something a father would never call their son. Do you see it? And my Lord is how a son would talk to the father, not how the father would talk to the son. So Jesus asks, how can the Messiah be both David's son and also David's Lord? It doesn't make sense. It's a contradiction. And he's got them. They can't answer. Now, I think in the Scriptures, there's a lot of times that Jesus asks a question and the Pharisees refuse to answer. Like, for example, they say he asks them about John the Baptist and his authority, and they refuse to answer because they know that any answer that they give will get them in trouble. But I think that this time they don't answer because they don't actually know what the answer is. They don't have anything to say. They're confounded. It doesn't make sense. If the, if the Pharisees and Sadducees have any wisdom at all, it's regarding the law. But of the things of the gospel, they have nothing at all to say. But it's quite wonderful that this text which confounds the, the Pharisees, this riddle, is not a riddle for us. We know the answer. In fact, even the children who are learning the catechism know the answer. How is it that Jesus is both the Son of David and the Lord of David? The answer, it is because He is both God and man. According to His human nature, He is the Son of David, and according to His divine nature, He is David's Lord. Like we confess in the Catechism, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. Do you see it? That this riddle of Psalm 110 is only answerable if we understand the mystery of the Incarnation. And this, dear saints, is the wisdom that Jesus wants us to have as we consider His death on the cross. This text, after all, this, this riddle, is the last thing that Jesus teaches publicly. This is Holy Tuesday, the Tuesday of Holy Week. And after this, Jesus walks out of Jerusalem, goes back to Bethany, and He doesn't come back until He comes back for the Last Supper and to be crucified. So that Jesus wants the crowds that are there in Jerusalem to know when they see the things that happen in three days on Good, Friday, on Good Friday, when they see these things happening in public, Jesus wants them to know who it is who is being crucified. Who it is that's dying on the cross. 
Jesus wants them to know that the man arrested in the garden, tried by the Sanhedrin and by Pilate, the man who was whipped and beaten, stripped and hung on the cross, mocked and, and died and who was buried, that this man is David's son and David's Lord. That the blood spilt that day is the blood of God, which is the blood that takes away sins. The blood that preaches greater things than the blood of Abel. A blood that brings forgiveness. Because, dear saints, the better we understand Moses, the better we understand the law, and the better we understand God's command to love, the better we know His wrath and His anger. The more we know of God's command to love the Lord with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves, the, the more we know this, the more we, we know how much we deserve hell itself. But the better we know this man, Jesus, the more we understand Him, then the more we know of the kindness and the love of God. This one, Jesus, the one promised by the prophets and given over to death by God's love, this one is our Savior from sin and death and the devil. And in the midst of our lives, which are marked day after day by a failure to love, in the midst of this life, this Jesus comes to us with His perfect love, with His dying love, with His love for you that knows no limit or boundary, and with this love He forgives you all your sins. His love makes a way for us through death to life. His love quenches the wrath of God, and it opens up for us the way to life everlasting. So this morning, dear saints, we rejoice. <coughs> this greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and this second commandment that is like it to love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus has kept this commandment. He's kept it for you. And His righteousness He gives to you as a gift. You who have failed to love have a Savior who has not failed to love you. And in Him we rejoice. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope. We hope your time with us was one of joy and peace in hearing the Lord's Word and kindness. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's broadcast, please don't hesitate to contact us at office at hope-aurora.org or call the office at 303-364-7416. For more information about our congregation, for locations, service time, and schedule, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope.